0: Damon Hill almost failed to qualify for his first race as reigning world champion with Arrows in 1997, and his car was so hopeless it broke down on the formation lap in Australia. If you told him then, or at any point during the first half of the season, that he'd be two laps away from a dominant victory with that same car in Hungary, he and everyone else would have laughed in your face. So how did it happen? Welcome to the latest episode of Bring Back V10s, brought to you by the Race where we celebrate all things loud in one of F1's most popular eras. I'm Glenn Freeman, and with me today are Ed Straw and making his first appearance on Bring Back V10's Matt Beer. Gents, welcome, and we hope that listeners, you're enjoying the series. And if this is your first taste of Bring Back V10's, then make sure you go back and check out our episodes on Alan Prost getting fired by Ferrari and McLaren's disastrous mp 418 the car, of course, that never raced. A quick reminder as well that our series finale will be all about questions and topics you want us to discuss. So make sure you find at We Are The Race on social media, use the hashtag Bring Back V10s, and get your questions and comments in for us, and we'll discuss them all in a few weeks' time. Now, Matt and Ed, welcome to the show. And Matt, we'll start with you with our traditional opening question. When you think 1997 Hungarian Grand Prix, what's the first thing that pops into your head? For me, it's the end of the
1: race. It's, I was probably the only person in the UK not celebrating a Hill win at that point because it was during my year and a half as a diehard Jack Villeneuve fan before I realised that might be slightly misguided. So uh, I was kind of grimacing at the thought of the of the Romantic Arrows victory. And so for me, it's uh, Williams bouncing across the grass and taking the lead rather than the thing I think everyone else remembers.
0: Well, that makes two of us at least then because there was another <laughs> Jack Villeneuve fan and one that maybe never saw the light. And that would be me. Uh, Ed, you're probably rolling your eyes at this conversation. What's what's your more measured take on, on Hungary 97? Well, I don't know whether it was measured, but I was very
2: much a, a Damon Hill fan. I was 17 at the time, so this was before I, uh, I started work as, uh, as a motorsport journalist. So it's two things, really. It's that the agony of the kind of slow death of the victory dream over those last few laps, the fact that it wasn't just like the engine went and he stopped, it was just drawn out and there was this hope against hope that he might be able to hold on to it. And of course, this was at a time when he didn't have live timing on with the race, so you couldn't see how obvious it was that he was going to lose it uh, on the last lap. And, and the other thing, I guess, is, actually the perceptions changed over the years because it it felt like this was a big dawn for this project there was lots of rhetoric around that year big money Damon Hill coming in John Barnard Tom Wolkin had had great success and I think this was probably the point where it seemed like yeah this is just the start you know he hasn't won but there'll be another chance around the corner as of course it's remembered now because it was such an outlier as a as a race a, a day when all these improbable alignments occurred to create this victory shot
0: yeah, and that's one of the directions we'll take with this episode. We'll look at why why Arrows was the team that ended up with this chance at victory when everybody else faltered. Because it's very easy to go down the the route that Hill sort of describes, which is, oh, we had a you know a nice little nimble car, underpowered engine. It was the Hungaro Ring. It was twisty. That's why we were good. That that explanation has never quite washed with me. But we can perhaps look at what everybody else did wrong, as well as what Arrows. Did right so when we focus on a specific race like this which is a first for bring back v10s we're going to set the scene before we get into the race weekend and in the championship at this point michael schumacher was 10 points ahead of villeneuve so ferrari were having a good summer villeneuve and williams were i think in the words of patrick head doing their best to try and throw this championship away hill had a point in the championship at this point point which, and I know Ed will like this, left him tied on seventh in, in 17th place in the championship with Nicola Lorini and Shinji Nakano on a single point. Uh, I was at the race where he scored that point, Silverstone 97, and the crowd went absolutely wild. But in the news ahead of this race, the big story was that Ferrari was bringing a new lightweight chassis for Schumacher. And it was interesting, actually, because Ferrari said up to this point it had been struggling to get its 97 car, the 310B, down to the weight limit. And they reckon that was worth 0.3 seconds a lap around Hungary. So if you make that over a race distance, that's a 23 second gain. And Ross Brawn explains here that Ferrari has started putting more effort into its 97 car because in his words, there's an opportunity we didn't envisage to win the championship in Schumacher's second year with the team. Quite a big step from 96 to 97 for Ferrari. And guys, was it? Somewhat understandable that Ferrari would have gone into this season expecting to have to make up ground on Williams, but not expect at the midpoint of the year to be leading the championship.
1: Definitely. I, th- I think
0: looking at the second half of
1: 96, even though Schumacher got two victories, they were both in slightly strange circumstances. Uh, spar less so, but that still relied on, on Williams making a bit of a mess of that race. And at Monza, he was one of the very few drivers not to drive into a tyre stack at chicane. And most of the time in a straight fight, the Ferrari was probably even with Schumacher about a minute off the pace across a race race distance and about a second to a second and a half off the pace in qualifying in in late 96. So given and also given how messy the first half of 96 had been, you know, Schumacher couldn't even start the French Grand Prix because the engine failed in the formation lap. The car was the ugliest Ferrari ever designed. And then they managed to find a way to make it even more ugly um, with the revised nose. So the you know there were three miracle wins that year and it was you know still a step forward and a sign that Ferrari was going places but you, even with Schumacher even with the kind of the Benetton brains gang coming over you didn't think that was going to be a title bid that early.
2: Well I think there was a small element of managing expectations I think overall the fact that, as Matt said, Ross Brawn had only come in late in the previous season. Rory Byrne, obviously, who was going to retire, actually, after the success with Benetton, had come in basically to replace John Barnard. So we are still quite early in this Ferrari project. And it's actually quite easy, in retrospect, to forget that because we, because of how close Schumacher did come to the title. We kind of feel like that was the, the natural level. But I think this was a, uh, uh, something that, uh, that, that still needed time to, time to gel.
0: Yeah, easy to forget, of course, that while this was an Adrian Newey-designed Williams, Newey had left the team before Christmas of 96. So I think Williams perhaps lost their way a little bit in the early part of the season. And Villeneuve has said in the past that the development direction perhaps wasn't great through the year. Schumacher gets pole for the race and he puts that down to the new chassis uh, and then promptly goes off in the morning warm-up the next day and damages the car so he can't race it. So... Who knows how this race might have turned out if that lightweight Ferrari would have been able to race on Sunday. But of course, we can't move on from qualifying without talking about Hill because he's third on the grid in the arrows. You know, that that was a total, a total upset. No two ways about it. Uh, if you look back at Hill's season up to that point, he'd only qualified in the top ten once when he was ninth in Brazil. And his average starting position for the season. Was 14th. So, Ed, what was your reaction when you saw Hill put in that qualifying lap that put himself third on the grid in an Arrows?
2: Well, I think at the time, as a, as a Hill fan, uh, I was probably uh, delighted with it and uh, surprised in equal measure, uh, shall we say. But yeah, it was, I guess, if this was going to happen, it would have been at a track like this because although the Bridgestone tyres in qualifying trim weren't quite as. Uh, as, as sharp as the, the Goodyear's uh, sometimes. I guess this was a track where the weaknesses of the Yamaha engine, which admittedly had improved, they just had the D-Spec uh, Yamaha engine uh, brought in so it played to the weaknesses, shall we say, or the strengths of the, of the engine. It was quite a nimble and nice to nice to drive car. Hill was really, really good around the Hungara ring as well and remember, not only had he won a couple of times there in, uh, in his career but he also qualified the Brabham in 92 at uh, Hungara ring. That was only one of two races he managed to qualify for and It's a really technical, tricky circuit. And Hill really was good there. 95, his victory there isn't often remembered, but it was actually a a brilliant one where he was just completely on top of it. So I guess maybe there was a feeling that if there was going to be a good performance in the bag, it would be here. But
1: third on the grid, I don't think that was something anyone would have uh, anticipated, at least of all Damon Hill. It It was definitely a surprise for him to be that high up. But I think by that point in the season, you kind of got used to ridiculous shocks happening as well. I mean, if you think, like you say... Brazil, he he qualified in the top 10. That was three weeks after or well, one race after he barely got onto the, onto the grid and well, didn't even start the race in Melbourne. So already you were having these big swings from very early in the season, which I, I think was a function mainly of the tyre war and there being so many unknowns around that and it all being relative minnow teams with effectively the superior tyre a lot of the time with the Bridgestone. So I, I felt, I think by very early in that season, you felt the ingredients were there for pretty much anything to happen any weekend and if you look down most drivers kind of uh list of race results and particularly qualifying positions from that year and uh, apart from maybe Villeneuve and Schumacher everybody else is all over the place and there's weekends where podium finishers drop into the midfield and people fly up the order so yeah I probably like Ed says Hill was was fantastic around the Hungaro ring and it was a it was always a great track for a underpowered car to do a bit better so third was a surprise, but. Yeah, I think him being in the top 10 certainly wasn't a shock, um, given how much form was fluctuating by that time in the season.
0: Yeah, and Hill would expected to be in the top 10 uh, that weekend, and he said maybe even top six if, if they could really get everything together. I feel that we have to go back there and do more justice to just how bad the Arrows was, particularly at the start of the year. Uh, and Hill says that when he first drove it, he said I, I, and this is from his book, an, an incredible book that I'd recommend anybody read. It's not for me. It's not just a sporting book. It's a you know, it's a real it's a book about, you know, the the mental challenges of being an elite sportsman and all the things that go on away from the track. So we're going to reference it a few times in this podcast. And if you haven't read it, I would thoroughly recommend it about the arrows, though. He says, I didn't expect it to be as bad as it was. At the first race, and this is as Matt has mentioned, the car was almost a non-runner. And when John Barnard came into the team, he said, the first thing we've got to do is make the car safe, which Hill found disconcerting and reassuring in his own words. And he said, we may have had number one on the car at the first race, but it was certainly not a number one car. We could hardly get it out of the garage. We obviously know he got dropped by Williams at the end of 96, somewhat abruptly, and that left him with limited options. And he said, touring round at the back with arrows was ignominious and humiliating as a defending world champion but he was determined to show what he could do with what he described as a no hope car and one thing he did say was that early on he realized the car was quite nice to drive probably because it was slow it didn't have any downforce but it was well balanced so again for a driver who's perhaps good around the hungaro ring you might be able to hustle a a nicely balanced car even though you would perhaps like a bit more downforce now matt you mentioned the tyre war and how that mixed things up in 97. And I think it's a really good point that you raised that really the the, the smaller teams having the Bridgestone tyres is what helped close the field up in a way because all the established runners stuck with Goodyear for, for 97. And Hill did wonder if Bridgestone might be Arrows' secret weapon at some point in the year. He'd done some of the testing for Bridgestone at the end of the previous year, which was with an old Ligier. There are pictures out on the internet, I believe, if you search search around for it. So he felt that if he could get the arrows to within a second of the pace then there would be a day where the Bridgestone tyres could do the rest. Now I don't know if you guys have ever gone back and watched qualifying from Australia. Uh, I think Ed, you probably have because you set me onto this clip quite some time ago, showing just how hard he'll had to drive just to get inside 107%. Now Villeneuve didn't do him any favours by being nearly two seconds clear of everybody. Um, I'll get that in. But one day we'll, of course, go back and look at Hill getting dumped by Williams and how that all unraveled as he was trying to win the championship. But quite often in Bring Back V10s, we look at a situation and we go, How could we can't imagine that possibly happening today? And with the, a, a man on his way to winning a world championship, getting dropped and ending up in what Hill calls a no hope car, it seems unbelievable today, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, very much so. A world champion doesn't go into a to a no hope car but it was an odd situation for Hill in that Williams brought Frentzen in and that seemed to be off the back of Hill's underperformance in 1995 and that deal seemed to be done relatively early should we say and Hill seemed to be one of the last people to uh, to know about it so it left Hill with very few options it's logical that he went for a one-year deal because a lot of the sometimes you do get these years where the contracts kind of line up. Actually, we've we've kind of had one in the real world in uh, in 2020 in Formula One before people like Verstappen started doing new deals uh, when there's lots of options open, should we say? So Hill was right to go for a, a one-year deal, and given the options on the table, I guess this was kind of a, a lucrative Hail Mary for him, wasn't it? It was unlikely to work, but there were some reasons to expect if any of those teams that, that were interested in him were going to pull something out of the bag arrows was the best place to 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 have a miracle and the, the bridgestone side was uh, was worth a go on and it sh- should be noted actually that bridgestone when they left formula 1 at the end of 2010 i did a feature looking back at the project and i was amazed to kind of discover they were testing formula 1 cars in the mid 80s okay it wasn't like it was a 10 12 year preparation full on but they had kind of a little f1 development program they were building on so it's perhaps no surprise that they came in and and had a tyre that was uh, that, that was so strong. So I guess, given the situation Hill was in of no good opportunities, you might as well have a flyer that's going to make you a lot of money that you
1: never know might just come off, because you know probably you're going to be stuck in the midfield at best anyway. I think the Tom Walkinshaw element was a massive part of that as well. I think, like you say, Ed, if you look at all the teams Hill could have gone to at the end of 95 you couldn't see any of the rest really changing their situations, but with Tom Walkinshaw taking over at Arrows during uh, during the '96 season and um, having such big ambitions for it, I think I remember when the deal was announced. I thought, you know, Walkinshaw must have found a way to get works Honda engines next year, and they just haven't announced it yet. You just you you thought there was a rabbit about to appear out of a bag, and I guess Bridgestone was as close as it got. Um, also, the Arrows wasn't completely hopeless in in '96. Jos Verstappen made it look pretty good in some of the early races. I think Argentina, in particular, um, it looked like quite a handy car if it had some money behind it and a bit of a a bit of a concerted effort. So you could see why if you if you were feeling bold and fancy taking a world punt, you'd take that punt rather than going for the safe-ish option of say something like Jordan. But um, the fact that the car was so bad come Melbourne qualifying, you know, Arrows was. You know, the second worst car on the grid in, in 96. And it felt like all this investment and this high-profile project had taken over the team and made that car worse um, going to start the new season.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting what you mentioned there, Ed, about Bridgestone tinkering away in the background with, with Formula 1. Now, I've seen stuff in the past, I think, on an, an old version of the Bridgestone website where they said eventually they actually brought forward their F1 debut, kind of in a bid to catch Goodyear out, I think they'd announced they were coming in for maybe ninety-eight or ninety-nine. And then they went, you know what, let's go sooner, because then Goodyear don't have time to react. So Hill and Arrows were banking on that weekend coming at some point where Bridgestone were the tire to have, and you know, Hungary was the best example of that through the year. There were a few others, um, but this was the one that created the biggest story. Now, anyone who's played the game F197 will have heard Murray Walker explaining that for 1997, there was a new rule where the tyre companies brought a hard and a soft compound. And after practice, the drivers had to choose which they were going to use for the rest of the weekend. And one of the reasons everyone had so much trouble in Hungary was that most people chose the soft tyre. Jordan were the only team of the Goodyear runners to take the hard tyre, and that was because they sh- they were the only ones to struggle with blistering in-, in practice. So, Ed, perhaps you and Gary Anderson can discuss that in the future on Gary's podcast. Um, but the hard tyre meant you didn't qualify very well, and the Jordans were down on the seventh row, so even though they had the right tyre for the race, they couldn't necessarily do anything about it. Heinz-Held Frentzen chose the hard tyre as well, though, and he was sixth on the grid, uh, which he felt was put down to... Temperatures dropping a bit for qualifying, but from sixth position, he was going to be a factor as we will revisit in a while. All the Bridgestone runners took softs except Jan Magnussen, uh, but he could only qualify 17th on the hard Bridgestones. But with the greatest of respect to Kevin's dad, he might never get his own episode of Bring Back V10, so let's have a quick chat about him now. Um, because he was in the news going into Hungary, uh, Stuart got gave him. As a team, they gave him quite a hard time through 97 and 98. They were quite open with the media about what they thought, about how he was getting on. And Paul Stewart said ahead of this race, Jan's had a difficult year, but he's improving. And it may well be that he's in the car again next season. If he starts to get closer to Rubens Barrichello from now on, that will affect things. And if he doesn't, that will affect things too. Magnuson said he would like to stay with Stewart. And he said, I hope key members of the team realise the problems I've had. It's getting better all the time but there have been times where I've not been fast enough and I put that down to my inexperience. He does go on to say that it's not always been his fault and that he feels there hasn't been too much pressure from inside the team. They understand that he's new to this and that Barrichello's got a lot more experience. Now Magnussen would only last into the middle of 98 when Stewart got rid of him, really citing his qualifying deficit to Barrichello that he could never get on top of. And Magnussen didn't take that very well and never would race again in F1. Ed, do you think that Magnussen got a fair crack at F1? Because before Stewart signed him, 497, you know, his reputation, based particularly off of his British F3 exploits, was absolutely colossal. And, you know, 18 months into his F1 career, that was it. He He was done.
2: Yeah, well, he was a driver who... The Stewarts knew how good he was. He'd won fourteen races, which was a, which was a record in British F three in ninety four, driving for them. So he had a lot of ability. He'd done a decent job with McLaren, who incidentally wants to keep him as test driver, but. Uh, Jan was very keen to get a race seat so he took what I think was a four year deal with with Stuart so it was a pretty good uh, deal I think Jan now will admit he wasn't really ready for it he didn't have the the all round package you have to remember drivers at this time they didn't have the sort of young driver schemes where they're prepared and trained and educated and it's a little bit of a kind of in at the deep end where you had to learn how to conduct yourself and uh, and I think Jan by his own admission didn't have the the maturity and the organisation and the, the kind of all round game to bring that talent uh, to bear, should we say? And then there were a few times where the communication between him and the team didn't seem to quite work. I think the team probably felt they needed to put some pressure on him to get him to sort of think, right, come on, you need to get serious here and understand you need to really apply yourself. And that probably... Uh, backfired, shall we say? And there's all these famous stories about Jackie Stewart taking Jan Manson to Walton Park to teach him dr- to drive in a higher car, basically, for want of a for want of a better word. And uh, and certainly Jan didn't like that. And in fact, to this day, he'll he'll sort of say that when Kevin was uh, was uh, driving, he's never sort of tried to be a driver coach to him. He's been a kind of racing coach and how to be a motorsport professional coach, which we should add. Jan has gone on to do with massive success in uh, in sports car racing. Obviously, for a long time, a Chevy factory driver, but you know he had his chance yeah and he had a long-term deal with a, a team that was pretty handy and ultimately his application and his professionalism wasn't there in retrospect I'm sure he'd say I wish
1: I could have gone back with what I know now and applied it and then maybe that talent would have been brought to bear. It, it was such a weird um decline of a career before it even started because I, you know, like you say his, rela- his reputation was so enormous after that F3 season but even before he got to F1, there were signs that it wasn't going to quite pay off in, in the way that his junior career had suggested. He went into the Mercedes fold for Class 1 touring cars, and he didn't crack on in the same way that Dario Franchitti did in that situation. He'd, he'd blown Dario away in, in junior single-seaters, but it was it was Franchitti who made the most of that Mercedes chance. Uh, Magnussen's one-off race with McLaren at Aida in '95 was very impressive. He was right on teammate Mark Blundell's tail all the way. Um, but that really seems like an aberration now. But I think as well, actually, you have to remember that he w- he was up against quite a tough benchmark in Rubens Barrichello, who was who was revitalised at Stewart, having got a little bit jaded towards the end of his Jordan career as well. So you kind of had the perfect storm of a driver who's not really got their head in the right place, not really applying themselves properly, possibly a bit overrated at that point, going up against someone with a few years of F1 experience who seems very happy in his new team and is blisteringly quick as well. So it. He probably had, in the end, the crack at F1 that he deserved at that point.
0: Yeah, and, and didn't really didn't really do much with it. And it's interesting, actually, I, I covered quite a lot of Kevin's junior career. And Kevin moved away from this as he got closer to F1. But certainly early on, he was very open that his dad had sort of schooled him in all the things not to do. And I think Jan was, was well aware that maybe his application wasn't right when he was uh, trying to break into F1 and when he got there. So, but uh, Kevin stuck around for a bit longer, so obviously those lessons were learned. Let's get on to the race in Hungary then. We'll run you through the grid. Uh, the front row was Schumacher and Villeneuve, which was actually, I think, a, a rarity in 97. Hill and Mika Hakkinen on the second row, then Irvine and Frentzen completing the top six. The remainder of the top ten was Berger, Coulthard, Alacy and Herbert. Barrichello and Trulli on row six. The Jordans on row seven, as we mentioned, Fisichella Keller and Ralph Schumacher, and the back part of the grid: Morbidelli, Nakano, Magnussen, Magnussen and Verstappen, uh, which could be, could be a grid for this year, not a grid for this year. Pedro Diniz and Ukio Katayama, and then Mika Salo and Tarso Marquez at the back. Uh, Villeneuve fluffs his start from the dirty side of the track, so Hill straight up to second place and chasing Schumacher. So it's Schumacher versus Hill for the first time in, in a couple of years. And as you can imagine, Murray Walker was incredibly excited about that. And then we get into a fascinating phase of the race early on because Schumacher's pace drops away after, what, four, five, six laps. Hill gets onto his tail, and then a queue all the way back to Herbert in seventh forms behind Schumacher. So you've got this train of cars running round behind the Ferrari. And Irvine's in third at that point, but after seven laps, he's in the pits when he's lost out to Hakkinen and Villeneuve. And at that point, Ferrari put that pit stop down to an imbalanced set of tyres. But as we go on to find out, this was just the f- the first signs of how much trouble Goodyear were in. It wasn't the imbalance. It was the tyres falling apart, basically. The famous moment happens on lap 11 when Hill takes the lead from Schumacher. And Murray Walker is absolutely delighted about this. A lap later, Hill's already 2.6 seconds clear of Schumacher. And a graphic comes up on the TV screen, actually, on the coverage, showing Schumacher's over three seconds a lap slower already than he was running earlier in the race. So we can break down this section with a couple of interesting jumping-off points. And let's start with the easy one first, which was Hill passing Schumacher and Arrows passing a Ferrari. Just an incredible moment. And this is is one of those iconic images, isn't it, From, from that 1997 season, where, as you said before, Matt, just anything could happen.
1: Yeah, completely. But also, in the context of Damon Hill's career, he wasn't a man notorious for ballsy overtaking moves either. And when you look at that that pass again, Schumacher's giving him a bit of a squeeze, Hill isn't backing off, he's breaking really late. Did he ever, did he do another overtaking move in that of that quality in his F1 career? It was... You know, it was a standout, It was definitely a standout moment but yeah, you, you would not have expected those two cars to be racing each other in a straight fight for the race lead and you wouldn't have expected Damon Hill to be that bold against Michael Schumacher it, it was actually, even for not a Hill fan at that point it was great. And
2: even if you factor in the, the grip advantage he had, it wasn't an easy pass to pull off Giancarlo Fisichella proved that later in the race when he tried to pull a very similar move on Michael Schumacher with a pace advantage, he didn't get it right he wasn't close enough Spoiler yeah, he wasn't the <laughs> enough out of the last corner. He, he 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 did a late dive and and spun off. Um, it wasn't a race that had a lot of passing, even though there are times when we have a lot of pace offsets uh, going on. So yeah, there was a tire advantage, but it, it wasn't that uh, it, it wasn't that simple. But I do think kind of addressing the question of the the tire situation, it's it's interesting to look at how bad it was and the reasons for that, because basically Schumacher was was pushing harder than than he was actually correct to do given the tyres early on and so that pace does drop off, he was doing lap 4, as you said, the sort of point where it starts to go, he did a 19.8 and then it's 28, 21.5, 22.7 23.0, 23.5 and you, if you watch him he's all over the shop, really struggling and I think probably the fact that this was the spare car, which he'd hardly done anything in exacerbated the situation so he really blistered the tyres he went too hard on them early on and you do see in later stints he's managing it a little bit more and I think that probably exaggerated the uh the situation and gave Hill gave Hill some uh some help and we should mention actually the Bridgestone softs were harder than the Goodyear softs should we say so uh so that that also played a part in it
0: yeah let's keep the the chat on tyres briefly because what those lap times you described there Ed that's what we would call today Schumacher falling off the cliff, isn't it? With with the Pirelli tyres falling apart, as we see, or we have seen in recent years. But back then, we didn't have fans, didn't have the same amount of information. We didn't have the same understanding, perhaps. We didn't have radio messages. We, tire degradation wasn't understood in the same way as it is today. So the opening stint of that race is looked back on as this really cool moment where the whole field closed up and an Arrows overtakes a Ferrari. If that sort of thing happened today, would we all just be really cynical about the fact that Michael Schumacher, the pole sitter in a Ferrari, leading the World Championship, has got tyres that can barely last five laps? Very probably, yes, because there's a
2: lot of that. <laughs> I guess the one difference is there was a tyre war going on here and it's a bit more fun when there's an offset and then you get kind of get the ebbs and flows, shall we say, and the different characteristics of the different tyres. So maybe that's a little bit of a difference. But yeah, you, do, you know, people didn't sit, you know, a hardcore F1 fan now will sit and watch a race with live timing. I actually did this with the 97 Hungarian Grand Prix uh, earlier today. I, I sat down and watched the full race. I found a, there's a, a, a site that offered full live timing, uh, which is, uh, which is fun to have to sort of play along with it. And that gives you so much more insight, whereas before races just used to unfold in a a very, very different way. But I do think the fact that there was a a tyre conflict does mean this is different. But there's always a tendency to reflect things in the past as better. You know, you have a race now where no one can overtake, Oh, it's terrible. But Jacques, uh, but Gilles Villeneuve, sorry, i got Jacques on the mind, but Gilles Villeneuve winning at Harama, holding everyone back. That's, that, that's brilliant because he was in a slower car holding everyone back. So it's all about um, perspective. And I think sometimes there's a, a tendency to, to deride and be cynical and have the old rose-tinted spectacles on, um, whereas actually the truth is probably somewhere in between.
1: It, it was interesting as well that earlier in the season... Um, Spanish, The Spanish Grand Prix was another one where tyre wear for Goodyear was a real problem and the Bridgestone car flew up the order. Um, Panis came from 12th on the grid to 2nd in, in the Prost in that race. I don't think he did any of the moves on track necessarily, certainly not later on. It was done by running longer and making his tyres last better and jumping people in the pits. But there was the closest thing to a social media backlash from 1997 then and I think Jim Rosenthal on the F1 pre- uh, ITV presenting team got very confused about the whole thing. And there was a debate between him and his fellow pundits about how confusing this tyre was making Formula One. I think because that, was, uh, that wasn't that was an especially romantically remembered race, the fact that the tyres made it a bit chaotic meant it's it's not remembered fondly and was seen as a bit confusing at the time. Whereas Montreal was another one where the tyres were a big factor and the Goodyears were getting very um, very flimsy that day. And that's remembered for Panis' massive crash and for a bit of drama with Coulthard losing a win when his car broke in the pits. Um, and obviously Hungary is remembered for the the hill near victory so it's almost like in those days i think ed's absolutely right the fact you couldn't predict what was going to happen with the the wild tyre wear helped as well it, it wasn't the same story on every race but also races where tyre wear and pit stop strategies did kind of decide the outcome they were still seen as negative back then unless something exciting and romantic happened along the way um like an arrows leading so yeah, I think the identity of the hero of this race made, makes quite a big difference to how it's remembered.
2: I think that the whole argument about confusion just in general, not on that specific race, winds me up because good racing, and unpredictable racing, whatever form that racing takes is the basis of variables and sometimes variables can be overpowering and people can kind of disproportionately come forward. A Grand Prix length race is not just about driving around fast, is it, the fastest car? It's far more complicated than that. And I do find the, the claims that things are confusing and unpredictable a bit I found them a bit annoying because that's what we want isn't it because if it's not confusing then the fastest car is always the fastest car and always wins
0: yeah and the teams know a lot more now perhaps than they did then so you mentioned there Ed that Schumacher did try to manage it a bit more later on and I think one of the things as we'll come to when we go through some of the other teams is that Friday practice didn't really throw up this this tyre wear problem so everyone was having to think on the fly. And actually what we saw was that most of the teams weren't equipped at all to react to that. But Schumacher does eventually dive into the pits and that's it for him and Irvine. Ferrari's challenges over. It's about Schumacher trying to pace himself to the end and get some points. We've already explained why Jordan weren't in the reckoning. Um, you know, they had a very quick car in 97 and, and contested or fought for a few victories. Uh, but let's get rid of another team that was quite good in 97 and that's McLaren. Uh, we mentioned there that Haken was right up the sharp end but he retires after 12 laps something that was quite common i think for mclaren in 97 lots of lost points and probably victories to unreliability uh goes a lot deeper into the race but 12 laps from the end when he's right behind villeneuve uh he gets put out by an electrical problem so mclaren's reliability we never quite got to see how they would have how the end of this race would have played out if Villeneuve had been catching Hill with Coulthard right on his tail. But McLaren really defeated themselves. So that's another team out of Arrows' way. Villeneuve gets past Schumacher before he pits and Villeneuve does catch Hill over the rest of that stint. But then he has a slow first stop and he blisters his tyres in the second stint and Hill absolutely disappears at this point. But what about the other Williams? We've mentioned Frensen a few times. And Matt, when we were discussing this episode initially, you said, oh, we've got to talk about the fact that Frensen should have won the race. Uh, he one stops on those hard tyres that we talked about. So he does end up out front. And he is 19 seconds ahead of Hill once all the two stoppers have stopped. So... Everyone else has got everyone's got one pit stop left to make, including Fretzen. He's a long way ahead of Hill. He set the fastest lap by seven tenths of a second. You know, his eighteen three seven two was seven tenths quicker than Villeneuve's nineteen zero, and Hill was back in fifth on that list with a nineteen six. Frentzen ends up retiring before that first stop. If you remember the TV footage, you see something bounce off the car down the start finish line, and. Then there's a, there's a lick of flame out the back of the car as well. And it turns out that was the fuel tank connector. So when he comes into the pits, he can't refuel. So, Matt, you can have your moment now to discuss your theory. <laughs> Would Frensen have won this race hands down if that hadn't happened?
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I I had to revisit the stats from this year quite a lot before this podcast because I had massive roasting to glasses about Frensen that season. Um, Like I said at the start, I wasn't much of a Hill fan um, by 96. I think I was 16. I was being deliberately contrary and deciding to hate the driver that everyone else loved at school. So I was like, yeah, Frensen taking his place will be brilliant. And at the time, I, I made up a lot of spurious arguments about how, if Frensen's strategies had worked out differently, he could have got great results in '97. I've revisited most of those using some lap time data in the last day and realised most of them were just nonsense and an optimism. But Hungary is the exception, and he absolutely had this race in the bag. Defending frentzen slightly, you know, he got he got seven podium finishes that year, which doesn't sound a lot in a 17 race season in the Williams back then, but. Wilhelm Schumacher only got eight. You know, it was his first year in a top team in the pressure of a title fight. Okay, he's another example, not as extreme as Magnussen, but he's another example of a driver highly rated in the mid 90s who didn't turn out to be that good. But I think he was judged very harshly by the media here that year for the crime of replacing Hill more than much that he did on track necessarily but yeah he he made the right tyre choice on this day his his race pace was phenomenal and I he was very unlucky a lot of that season and for a team like Williams in its title winning heyday for the fuel connector to fall off the car going around the corner is just a, a, a ludicrous problem for that team at that time to have and typically it should happen to Frensen so yes it would have been a tragic, romantic story of Hill losing second place had Frenson been luckier. Yeah, I think the only
2: the only question about Frenson is whether he might have had a problem on the second set of tyres after his stop. There's absolutely no reason to suggest he would have done because he'd chosen the hard. He was he was going well. And if you look at Hill's pace uh, after Frensen's out, you know, OK, he's controlling the race. But there's nothing in Hill's pace that says he could have made up for that uh, that kind of extra pit stop uh should we say so probably would have been friends so i just wanted to briefly mention though Coulthard because he did pass momentarily Villeneuve after his pit stop Coulthard stopped uh, made a second stop one lap earlier came out just ahead but got a bit too hot into turn one while trying to kind of complete the move and uh, and went wide so uh i imagine this this is a race dc will be will be probably still today kicking himself for uh for not winning because he really really could have done and Hacken and
0: had he survived, the race would have been uh, would have been ahead of all of them, probably. Yeah, there's so many people whose race this This could have been. Now, we mentioned already that Fisichella Keller spins out trying to overtake Schumacher. But while we wrote Jordan off because they were qualified on the seventh row, uh Keller was trying to pass Schumacher for fourth, I believe, when, frankly, uh, we have to blame Fisichella Keller for this. You know, Schumacher's hard to overtake, but it, it was rubbish from Fisichella. Keller. He spins off. And at that point, um, the Schumacher-Fissie-Keller battle was nine seconds behind Johnny Herbert, who we know ends up finishing third. So with the way Fissie was going, there's every chance he could have been on the podium as well had he not made that blunder. Um, so even though Jordan had really blown the race on Saturday, they, they still had a chance at a good result. And all of this going on, the McLaren, you know, Hackenden's dropped out, Irvine's in trouble, Fissie-Keller's thrown it off the road. So Schumacher's still chug him round in the points somehow and uh, he ends up with uh, probably a a nice sight in his mirrors which is the other Jordan of Ralph Schumacher behind him and I think we all know that particularly in the early part of Ralph's career he wasn't particularly brave when it comes to racing his his brother and he did actually say after the race I would have been stupid if I'd tried to overtake and something had gone wrong now I don't think Michael ever had that attitude towards towards racing Ralph. Uh, and I think he sometimes took advantage, actually, of the fact that he did think that Ralph would back out. And uh, Michael said afterwards, my brother was quicker than me, and if I had not been fighting for the title, I could have let him pass, which is uh, incredibly dignified of you, Michael. Um, but Schumacher, do you think Schumacher was perhaps lucky uh, to have Ralph behind him? Because it did seem that people were catching him and he had, he had no answer to, to the pace of anybody uh, who, who caught him up. But he ended up with Ralph and Eddie Irvine behind him. That was about the best buffer he could have got, wasn't it? Yeah, it probably helped
2: him helped him out a little bit. He was having a difficult race, but I think as Fizzy showed, it was it was pretty difficult to pass him, whoever you were uh, in in Schumacher's position. But uh, yeah, just one of those horrible races, and it says a lot about Michael Schumacher that he he salvaged what he could from it.
0: Yeah, uh, Schumacher shown that he he wasn't just about driving away at the front. Now, at the back of that queue was uh, Nakano in the Prost, and he eventually, I think, fires Irvine off, if I remember correctly. Now, we were talking about, you know, uh, Matt, you mentioned the Spanish Grand Prix where Panis charged through to second, and Panis was one of the stars of the first part of the season before he suffered his uh, broken leg in Canada. So, in the first half of the year, the feeling really was that if the Bridgestone tyres were up to anything, it was Prost that would be the team would be able to do something about it. They really were, it was the fastest Bridgestone car for the majority of the season. But let's look at some of the other teams we haven't talked about, and we'll start with Prost, because what we are trying to work out here is why was Arrows the team that ended up at the front of this race that nobody seemed to to want to win? Prost, on average, were 0.6% faster than Arrows through the season, so you have to wonder, really, why didn't they take the opportunity and we talked about friday practice being a bit misleading trulli who was filling in for panis was third and sixth in practice and very happy but then in qualifying he was 12th 1.2 seconds behind hill who was third so that's where it all went wrong for trulli and he was a lot faster than nakano in qualifying but nakano was kinder to the tires in the race so it ends up being nakano who's on the fringes of the points as the race develops ed what do you think about Prost? This would have been their golden opportunity, really. We know, I think Truly led a load of laps in Austria, which is another good Bridgestone race. But why, you know, this has to go down as a huge missed opportunity for Prost, doesn't it? Because if Arrows are up there, then really Prost should have been ahead of them.
2: Yeah, I think it might have been a different story had Panis not been out. Shinji Nakano, perfectly competent capable driver but he's not the guy who's going to win you a grand prix in those uh, situations he had a kind of good run by his standard jano truly very inexperienced but uh, it's it's amusing to see the starting the weekend nicely and then starts to struggle because that was kind of the story of his uh, of, of a lot of weekends for him and that he's, he was i mean i rate jano as a stunningly fast driver when everything's right he's one of the quickest guys that's probably ever been in a grand prix car but things were not right often enough and uh he obviously was very inexperienced at this at this stage the one thing i would say is that prost uh, rather arrows had done an awful lot of testing and a lot of work with hill in particular on getting the most out of these these cars panis actually was a very good test driver as well just like hill was so that that again probably would have stood him in good stead but i think because as you referred to earlier hill knew this opportunity was going to come they'd really concentrated on on kind of being ready but i i've got no doubt panis would have been in good shape for example you look back to something like Argentina at the start of the year, which was a hot race. That was one that Panis, had he not retired early on, would have had every chance of winning. Of course, uh, Jacques Villeneuve held on under pressure from uh, Eddie Irvin in, in, in the end. So I think Prost probably did not have the driver in the car to win that race unless it was a, a weekend where someone like Trulli was absolutely on it and, uh, and happy. Yeah, that they, the guy they needed was still rehabilitating after
1: breaking his legs in Canada. I think because Trulli was so highly rated at that point, I think expectations were too high for what he was going to do at Prost as well. Because it wasn't just that he was inexperienced in F1 terms. He'd had about a year and a half of Formula 3 after karting. And then straight into F1, he he was, what, four races into his time at Prost when when Hungary happened. Nakano hadn't raced in Europe, I think, before he got that drive. So comparing the... uh, on, on, on a weekend that needs a bit of nouse and a bit of setup sensitivity to get something right, comparing the experience level that Prost had up against Hill and the arrows was, yeah, that Prost was massively hamstrung once it once it lost the sort of safe pair of hands that Panis represented.
0: So a missed opportunity for Prost. Let's move on to the team that won the race before Hungary, which was Benetton, who won in Germany with Gerhard Berger. Benetton were nowhere this weekend. Of, of all the Goodyear teams, they were one of the the worst affected. Uh, Berger finished eighth, uh, more than a minute off the lead, and would have been lapped if Hill hadn't had his problems at the end. But what tells you more about this race, I think, was Jean Alesi finishing behind a Minardi. Um, so the fact that Benetton went from winning one race to being miles away in the next one was this perhaps a sign that with, with the Schumacher empire had been picked apart now, and lots of people had followed him to Ferrari. The key, some of the key people. Behind Benetton's success was the fact that they could be so hot and cold from one race to the next. Was it the, were these the first signs that Benetton were really losing their way after the the Schumacher glory years?
2: Yeah, the, it was a bit all over the place. I think their their driver lineup probably wasn't the ideal one. Maybe you could have one or the other, but you needed them perhaps paired with uh, with someone else. But yeah, they had lost key people. Uh, Pat Simmons that was still there. You know, he'd moved up to uh, a technical leadership position, having been. Uh, Schumacher's race engineer previously so we know how good Pat Simmons is but still early days for him and yeah I think they were just a bit all over the place the car had been developed around and obviously the 97 car was still the same lineage as the B195 Schumacher had driven so it was still kind of down a road that was built to his esoteric driving style even though both drivers preferred it that year and yeah they were just all over the place they were clearly rooting the tyres they were you know, Lacey at one point was lapping incredibly slowly, um, as demonstrated by the fact Armour beats him. So, uh, yeah, I, I just think it's a team. It, it didn't have the, perhaps the, the correct drivers and the team itself was in a period of retrenchment. And Michael Schumacher himself, when we were doing an interview with him a while ago, he knew that he probably could have won the championship in 96 with Benetton, maybe even in 97, but he knew it wasn't a team that was going to stay at the top of Formula One for five, six, seven, eight years or whatever, whereas he knew Ferrari had that potential.
0: Yeah, we'll keep moving through the grid. Sauber obviously had a car on the podium with with Johnny Herbert here, so we won't necessarily pick apart their weekend. But the interesting thing about Sauber in the news at the time was that rumours were coming out that they were trying to get, or that Michael Schumacher might test the car for them. That did happen, and if you Google it, there are some great pictures of, uh, I think, a sponsorless Sauber with Schumacher's iconic crash helmet in the cockpit. And... It was basically Sauber wanting to find out a bit more about their car because they weren't that happy. Herbert had done okay, but we'd had uh, Lorini, Morbidelli and even Norberto Fontana in the second car and the team really weren't that sure where they were going. But this again, this is a great story. And the comparison for me is I consider this to be a bit like Lewis Hamilton going and doing a test for Racing Point. You know, a midfield team that's got a, an engine supply connection. Michael Schumacher going and testing a Sauber. What, what, what a bizarre thing! Now, it was very interesting beforehand because there was talk that Herbert didn't want Schumacher to test the car because they hadn't got on that well at Benetton. But in the end, Herbert agreed with the feedback. I think Schumacher said a lot of similar things to what Herbert had been telling the team, so that was that was handy. But an iconic driver testing another team's car during the season. Do you think we need to bring that back?
1: It, it does show that these things just aren't possible with testing restrictions. Now you wouldn't you wouldn't throw away a day to uh, well actually you might if you get if you get hold of Lewis Hamilton to jump in your car if you're um, if you're a back of the grid team you probably would to be fair. Um, if you're Williams or something like that. But it, it was a kind of throwback to a to an, to an a very different era when teams could do what they want. Start of kind of political alliances as well. You know, how close Saab became to Ferrari became uh, a big point around that time as well.
2: The closest I can think of recently was Pedro de la Rosa, the McLaren test driver, in November 2008. Did a couple of days in the Force India. He'd just done their technical partnership with, uh, with McLaren. Not quite a legendary
0: driver, but a, a top team driver. Yeah, you're not having that. That's not the same. Uh, Sorry, Pedro, but you're not Michael. (laughs) Let's get back to the race. Uh, There's five laps to go. Hill is 35 seconds clear of Villeneuve. And even Hill says that that point, that was when he started to think, yep, I can can win this. And then to use Hill's words, when you start thinking like that, of course, something goes wrong. Three laps from the end, he slows dramatically with hydraulic problems. Uh, So that affected his throttle and gear change. Um, and Damon says that in the end, he had no throttle. The car was stuck in fifth gear. So he was just trying to roll around on sort of tick over revs that would just about keep it going. Villeneuve takes nine seconds out of him on lap 75, which brings the gap down to 24 seconds. Hill loses 19 seconds on the penultimate lap. And Villeneuve passes him early in the final lap. And Hill, if you remember, does a, a little wiggle towards the Williams. As they rocket out of turn three up to turn four, uh, that prompted theories that maybe Hill was running out of fuel because it looked like he was shaking the car to try and get some fuel pickup. But Hill has since admitted in his book that uh, he was trying to make myself a bit wider. Uh, now, guys, we both we've mentioned the heartbreak, so we won't dwell on it for too long, but. Uh, Matt, you said that you perhaps wanted Villeneuve to win this. I, I was a Villeneuve fan well and truly by this point, and I'd been a Hill fan up to 95, but then, you know, he lost me in 95, much like he lost Frank Williams. Um, but there was even a part of me who was going, this is such a cool upset. Uh, and Ed, was this the biggest heartbreak since one of your favourite races of all time, which was Ivan Capelli failing to win the 1990 French Grand Prix?
2: Yeah, nothing can quite replace the 1990 French Grand Prix in my heart because that was such a great story. That was uh, uh, obviously the only one I can remember watching. But yeah, I mean, it, it was su- it was such a wonderful story, and I think although it's still remembered as this great near miss, it would have stood as a as just this amazing feat. And remember, of course, arrows have been around for a very long time uh, without winning. They, they're still the team that had existed for the longest time without without winning a Grand Prix. Um, so yeah they they deserve to deserve to do it and I can't necessarily blame uh blame, blame for having his little wiggle to try and uh try and half-heartedly keep Villeneuve behind but it wasn't very committed was it it was
1: so half-hearted it it was another thing that when I rewatched the race I was like oh I remembered that as being a lot more dramatic but between them Villeneuve doesn't need to be driving down the gravel at that point he was already pulled to the middle of the road he doesn't need to be like jiggling his car very slightly it it was massively melodramatic on both parts, but it did kind of make a slightly iconic bit of uh, bit of TV footage, so they're forgiven.
0: I don't think that swerving came naturally to someone like Damon Hill, let's put it that no, way. No, bless him. <laughs> yeah, it's a very un-Damon Hill move. After the race, Damon, Damon's philosophical, says he's got mixed feelings, bitter to come so close, but also says that Arrows should celebrate a second place. Tom Walkinshaw... Uh, you won't be surprised to hear, was not quite so measured, saying, uh, I'm bitterly disappointed, we should have won and we lost, and I don't see why we should be happy with that. Uh, you can both answer this one. Uh, Matt, you go first. Wh- whose side would you be on there? Would you would you take the hill view, the philosophical one, or the sort of enraged Tom Walkinshaw perspective of, this is a lost win, why am I celebrating second place?
1: I'd go with the person with a sense of vague perspective there, which was... Um... Definitely, definitely, Damon Hill. I think in those comments, Tom Walkinshaw was was thinking about what the team was in his head at that point, rather than what it actually was in practical reality. Which was, you know, something that had barely got on the grid for the first race of the season, hadn't won a race in twenty years, and was going to go bust a few years later. Um, this was this was a second place to celebrate.
2: I think you can enjoy it at the time, but I'm still largely with Tom Walkinshaw. If you want to, if you want to get to the top <laughs> in in motorsport, you've got, uh, you know, you look at the few percent that didn't go right, rather than the. 99% that did go right Should we uh shall we say so I, I can't blame him for for that outlook particularly as they it wasn't marginal the race was won so yeah I, I I can get completely where Tom Walkinshaw's coming from but at the same time as the team boss he needs to let the team have the enjoyment of a second place as well so uh, there's a fine line to be trodden don't run around straight after the race uh Causing problems, should we say? But when you when you get to the factory and have a proper debrief and really work out what you need to do next, that's when you start thinking, right? Come on, we can't be happy with this. Yeah.
0: Now you talked there about what a team has to do to become a winner in Formula One, and uh, we'll see how long we end up dwelling on this one for. But uh, obviously, one of the one of the lazy theories about this race is that uh, the Willie the Williams it was blue and white. The arrows uh, must have been illegal that weekend, and that's why it was so quick. Uh, And Hill doesn't talk about it specifically in his book about Hungary, but he does talk about going to a meeting with a potential sponsor with Walkinshaw, where Tom says, if you want to win in F1, you've got to cheat. And Hill didn't like that because he just signed as world champion. So he felt that was an implication that he'd been cheating up to that point to win. Uh, Damon says about this, uh, what Tom was saying was hardly ambiguous. He meant that everyone in F1 was a cheat. So it was okay to cheat. I now realised I was in a team whose owner thought it was acceptable to cheat. Tom's attitude deemed the crime to be getting caught rather than breaking the rules. Anybody want to say anything on that or shall we move on? I think you have to look at the, it's a question of plausibility.
2: I don't know for sure um, either way ultimately, but you can look at the, the set of circumstances that all came together, which we talked about extensively in this podcast. And it is kind of a perfect storm it's the kind of thing that wouldn't happen today with the data and the knowledge the teams have got. So it, it's not an implausible turn of events. Certainly quite often in this theory, you hear the idea that oh, it was illegal, but they weren't allowed to win. And so that's why they did what they did at the end. But that's not really how you do things. If if it was one of, one of these things where they just felt they couldn't win and they had to bank the second, then you wouldn't do it in that way. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure, well, I'm convinced Damon Hill's honest in that he wouldn't have been part of, uh, of, uh, of such a thing. So, uh, you, you always have to give the benefit of the doubt there, and, and I suspect had, uh, had there been something questionable going on, it might have happened a little bit more often, should we say, in that year, because <laughs> it wasn't like uh, they had many other high points other than Hereth qualifying and the point at Silverstone. This was pretty much it. So uh, let's, uh, I, I think we should, be, we should be fair about the circumstances, and th- the tyre variable is the, is the big thing here, and I think that's what we have to look to to understand why this happened.
1: There are enough actual reasons for something weird to happen in that race. If you want to look at anything from ninety seven and go, "Oh, was that a bit scripted?" I think Harreth qualifying with the top three on the same time is the one that makes uh, that, is, that is dubious. But
0: goodness knows how you'd orchestrate that. And Hill, of course, qualified about half a tenth off of pole in Harreth and ended up yeah. starting fourth. Now we're in dreamland for me because we're talking about Harreth ninety seven, but that will get its own episode in the future. <laughs> one last mention of the championship decided though, because after the after Hungary. Schumacher says, I hoped Damon would win. Now, remember, Schumacher and Hill were still enemies at this point. I hope Damon would win because he deserved to and also because it would have helped me in the championship. So a quick theory here would be that if Hill would won that race, Villeneuve would have been four points worse off going to Jerez, which would have meant that Schumacher didn't need to crash into him to win the championship. So perhaps Damon can take some solace in the fact that, in a way, he cost Michael Schumacher the 1997 championship. But Damon's in the news um, after Hungary, not just for that performance, but because the driver market is alive and he's a central part of it. Ed, you mentioned that this was very much a one-year project in Hill's mind. So now he's you know, he's put in a couple of good performances. He was good at Silverstone as well. And he's, he's a man in demand, or in some demand. Um, Ron Dennis gave some quotes before the weekend about... McLaren's lineup not being set. So after uh, the weekend, there's some talk about Adrian Newey trying to get Hill into McLaren. And Ron, in his own special way, says, the problem with being so close to this sport is that the last result can play a big role in your judgment. You have to control that emotion, look at the facts, and understand the whole package of aspects that influence performance. I think that's a sentence. Um, Now, McLaren are in talks with Hill, but Ron makes an offer that uh, upsets Damon so much that he slams the phone down on him. And Hill tells this story in his book where uh, Ron says, we'd like to have you in the team, but we'll pay you in performances only. And the offer was a million dollars per race win with no basic retainer. Hill obviously said, you know, McLaren's a team that works its drivers hard with sponsors. You've got the cachet of a world champion. And he said, do you place a value on that? And Ron said, no, um, So as I say, Hill slams the phone down, then panics and tries to get his manager to get back uh, with McLaren on the line. Damon looks back on it now saying he realised it never would have worked at McLaren because he couldn't drive for a team that wasn't sure it wanted him. So do you think that offer from Ron was just his way of saying perhaps to Newey, who'd only just joined the team, look, I've tried to get your man, but he's not interested? There was probably a little bit of that,
2: wasn't there? Because uh, Newey uh, rated Hill and his qualities as a test driver, in, in particular, uh, and I, you can understand Hill's position on that. Okay, you can have an incentivised contract that's performance based, but when it's quite as uh, as stark as that offer was, particularly for a team that had left a number of wins on the table in '97 to their own failings and unreliability, you understand why that wasn't necessarily what uh, what you wanted to do. And to be fair to Hill as well, you now the financial side. You always think you just want to get into the best car, but he started quite late in Formula One. So he, he had a relatively, for a kind of world champion level driver, he had a relatively small earning window. So you can understand why he wanted to make sure he he was guaranteed a, a decent uh, level of income, shall we say. Would it have worked at McLaren? I, I, suspect, I suspect it would have done with Hill's level of professionalism, to be honest. So maybe there's a bit of after-the-fact rationalisation there. But, you know, I... I I think that what that says is I doubt if it's something that keeps Damon Hill up at night, even if probably there would have been some wins, more wins than the win he did get in 98 had he been at McLaren.
0: Well, that's the question, isn't it, Matt? Coulthard uh, kept the second seat at McLaren and he won one race. So if Hill had, had done the same, he'd have got a million dollars for that year. Do you think, is is that an accurate barometer of perhaps what Hill could have achieved alongside Hakkinen, or would he have got more out of the car than Coulthard did that year?
1: I actually think that it would be about the same. Um, two reasons for that. One is... Um, Coulthard versus Hill at Williams second half of ninety four when Coulthard hit his stride and then when he was healthy during ninety five there wasn't a lot to choose between them and Coulthard went on such a good run, okay, he didn't get the job done in the races that much, but in raw pace he was very strong second half of ninety five I think he would have I genuinely think he would have beaten hills the ninety six title given continuity in the team if he'd stuck around um so I think i don't i don't I don't see Hill as a convincingly better option than Coulthard at that point. Also, he'd been up against Hacken and had that amazing relationship with McLaren kind of forged through replacing Senna effectively and through the adversity of the Adelaide crash as well. And Hacken was the closest to Schumacher in raw pace, maybe actually faster on outright raw pace. So I think Hill going into a team that didn't really want him, replacing someone who was roughly the same speed based on when they'd been teammates, up against a teammate who the team boss absolutely adored and who was pretty much the quickest of his era, Nah, that wouldn't have worked. It would have been a miserable
0: experience for all involved. There you go, Damon. You you, you didn't make the wrong decision. So McLaren are out of the running, uh, and it's now the race for Hill's services is a battle between Arrows, Prost, Sauber, and Jordan. And uh, Jordan, where obviously, which is where Damon ends up, were considered the outsiders in the media at this point because it was believed that Eddie Jordan wouldn't pay the sort of money you'd need to get Hill in. So Hill was offered a million dollars per win at McLaren, At Sauber, he was offered a million pounds per race just for turning up. And uh, it was a two year deal, which is exactly what Damon wanted to see out his career, uh, which made it very hard to turn down. But in the end, Hill's verdict was uh, Sauber were deluded if they thought I could make them winners. And uh, he then went back to Walkinshaw and told him about the offer, even though he didn't intend to stay at Arrows either. And uh, Walkinshaw made him the same offer. So Hill then had two midfield teams offering him what would have been £16 million a year for the next two years. Ed, you talked about Damon having a short career and you've got to get the most out of it that you can. Could we have forgiven him if he took north of £30 million for the last two years of his career to drive an Arrows or a Sauber? Yeah, I don't
2: think those would have been very... uh acceptable choices should we, should we say Sauber was what it was the C16 in 97 was a tidy little car and they had some good weekends as well as some difficult ones but that was kind of their limit ultimately and remember they did have an old spec Ferrari engine that was the first year of the Petronas engine deal in uh, the Petronas badge Ferrari engine deal in 97 so there was a ceiling on what that team could achieve it's, it's midfield fodder uh likewise uh, I think it would be a, a similar thing if you go to any of those teams, stay at Arrows, unless you're convinced that the, that the project is going somewhere, which obviously he knew it wasn't at that stage, then, yeah, you are just taking the money for, for the money's sake. And, yeah, the movie did make made a lot more sense, shall we say. And it was lucrative in its own right as well. So, yeah,
0: he deserves a payday, but if
2: you're going to do it, do
0: it. Yeah, now the other team in the mix was Prost, and uh, it was a slightly strange situation for Alain Prost, to have to go and approach his last teammate in Formula One, Damon Hill, about potentially driving for him. And uh, Prost, I think, was already feeling the strain of being a team boss when he went to visit Hill at his villa and saw his family sunning themselves by the pool and thought, hmm, yeah, it was a lot better being a driver than it is a team boss. Uh, Prost and Hill's talks don't go anywhere. And um, Hill accepts to now that he perhaps, well, in his words, he uh, clumsily said he wouldn't drive there because the team was too French. Um, Not a great choice of words. And uh, his justification was it was a French team with French engines and a French teammate, but I can see why it went down so badly. Um, But Prost took this really badly, actually. Not not that comment, but um, when he finally found out about Hill uh, being in talks with Jordan, Prost felt this was Hill trying to play a negotiating game with him and get him to up his offer, and he's very critical of Hill. And at the time, he said, I'm very disappointed with the way Damon has conducted himself. We talked at length, and I believed we had a firm deal. Then I was suddenly called to say he'd been offered a drive with Jordan. It was as if he he was expecting me to give him more money than we had already agreed. I decided there was no point taking things any further. I felt his main motivation was money rather than helping my team win races. We were great friends when we drove together at Williams' but now I've seen him in a different light. It's just as well we didn't manage to do a deal because I want someone who is motivated by winning races and building a team up. I thought that Damon was the perfect driver to help take us forward, but it looks as if I was wrong. 1997, unquestionably, was Prost's best season. And really, everything about that team was Ligier that year because he took it over so late. And when he got the French engines, the Peugeot engines for the next year, that was really the start of of that team becoming a bit of a disaster. So I've got two questions really here, Matt. Was Hill right to steer clear of going to drive for his old teammate? And was Prost, in overreacting in the way he did, perhaps a little bit naive to not really understand how the driver market works when you're on that side of the fence? I think the fact that Prost
1: looked like he aged about 20 years in four years of team management shows that he did take a very emotional approach to this. And you know, he was the most cerebral of racing drivers, but he I think it's fair to say he did prove out of his depth as a as a team boss. In that let's use Damon's terminology, in that extremely French situation with all of the French expectation of their world champion, their team as, as Ligier as well for so long. And Peugeot Engines, there was a lot of romance around it, and it very quickly unraveled, it took a big toll on, on Alain Prost. And I think in Hill's head by that time, he's got that far into his season with arrows seen things unravel the way they have, he's looking for the safest bet by that time. And he could potentially see the trajectory that uh, that, Pro- that Prost was heading down al- already. And, you know, like like we said earlier, Prost should have been the team that, that had the chance to win in Hungary and most of the good Bridgestone races. I think if you're Hill looking at that situation, having beaten Prost that many times, you're thinking that might actually be a step backwards.
2: At that stage, Prost is... Ninety percent just a French arrows, isn't it? It's great expectations, French super team. All it's got all the names, the Prost, the Peugeot engine deal. It was very political how that got engineered out of Jordan and into, and into that team. So, yeah, you can see on paper why it could work well. Great team boss name. It's so similar to the arrows thing, possibly coming from a fractionally high level given '97, but I imagine Hill was listening to the pitch from Alan Prost, thinking, "Yeah, I've heard, I've heard this before." So, yeah, I mean, how many points did Prost score in in 1998? One, so. Yeah, Damon Hill might have got them three points or something, but I don't think they're going to do much better.
0: I've never heard Prost called the French arrows before, but I'll let, I I think I think you're absolutely right, Ed. So Hill's having all these talks basically at the same time, but he said that as, as he eliminated each of the other teams from his head, uh, he, he knew that Jordan was the one he really wanted. And he knew that he wanted the most competitive car there and then, not a project, because he said that the whole McLaren thing had left him a bit, Disillusioned, and uh, after being dumped at the back of the grid after losing the Williams drive, he needed to be in a competitive car. And as we've talked about, and Ed, as I'm sure you and Gary Anderson will talk about in the future, Jordan very good in '97, so a good platform if you were going to try and sign for them in '98. Uh, the negotiation was fun though, uh, because Hill basically got uh, Benson and Hedges, the main sponsor, to go to bat for him with Eddie Jordan. So. EJ basically ends up negotiating against a driver and his own sponsor, uh, which didn't go down very well. But Damon gets the two-year contract that he wanted all along. And when it's announced, Hill says that he could have gone there in 97 um, and he turned them down. But he's changed his mind because the team have established themselves as a competitive force. And he says that he expects them to win races in 98. While EJ says it'll be a bitter blow if they can't win with Hill. Ed, We've looked at those other teams. We've dismissed the likes of French Arrows and uh, and Sauber and, and, and anyone else who was, who was in the mix. Was Jordan the obvious choice for Hill? Well, if you can't get into one of the established big
2: four teams at the time, then yes. And okay, there was the McLaren option, but that was obviously a slightly... We've discussed that. That was a slightly odd choice. So yeah, Jordan is the place to be. Gary Anderson maintains that had Rubens Barrichello stayed at the team in 97 rather than moving to Stewart, that that 197 car was good enough to win a Grand Prix. And actually... You look at uh, how well Giancarlo Fisichella and Ralph Schumacher went in fits and starts in '97. There are a lot of points thrown away. They could have won in Argentina. They decided to have a collision instead, and uh, ended up with Ralph coming home third after that. But yeah, they could have won that race. So I think Jordan was the the coming team. It was the I think they were fifth fastest on average over the season and basically the same pace as Benetton. Although Prost was sixth fastest, but about half a percent further back, I think, on, on pace. So Jordan was the place to go. And actually. The hill jordan relationship it was it was quite cool certainly ninety eight it petered out in the end in ninety nine but ninety eight is a year hill's well remembered for, I think, so that that was an important part of the Damon hill story I feel
0: yeah now Matt um your recall of all things nineteen ninety seven has been superb so far, so if you think back to when this was announced and and Hill and Jordan are talking about you know we've got to become a race winning partnership here very easy to look back at it now and say, well, they won a race. Jordan were really good in 99. So it all came together. But do you remember thinking at that point? Yes, this is definitely a combination that will win in 98. I I actually
1: remember thinking um, they don't need Hill to win in 98 because we'd come from, you know, physicality could have won at Hockenheim where he had the puncture where he was battling Berger for the lead. Uh, he was second only to Schumacher at Spa in the wet as well. It, Jordan really was going places with that young lineup. I was a big Fizzy fan at that point, and not a bit very big Ralph fan. So I was thinking, you know, the the dream line that was keep Fizzy win a bunch of races in in '98. Um, but yeah, J- Jordan had the momentum. They got they'd been a, they'd lost a lot of momentum in '96 after strong '94 and '95. It was it was logical, like we said, Hill needed the safe bet. Jordan was on the cusp of winning by that time.
2: Yeah, it's, and and we should remember actually, ninety eight started very badly. If you listen to the Gary Anderson F one show, he talks about the ninety eight season, how that that turnaround happened. But uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately, Fisichella because he moved to Benetton, and there was some dispute about about that move. So Jordan probably couldn't have kept him anyway. So I guess they they had to go with that choice. But teams like like the idea of bringing in these established winners, don't they? When they feel like they're ready to win, teams talk about being ready to have a, a, a top gun and obviously Jordan felt they were and it, it helped them commercially as well so I guess that's why it worked for uh, for both sides and of course sure enough he'll, he'll did get them that breakthrough win.
0: Yeah it definitely worked and Jordan's path to that maiden victory will get its own episode in a future series of Bring Back V10s so we'll leave the Hungary 97 story there. Damon Hill has done well in Hungary, he's got himself a drive for 98, all is right with the world We hope you enjoyed looking back at that race in a a slightly different way to perhaps we've ever seen before. And we'll be doing more of these race specific episodes in the future. Get in touch with us on social media at WeAreTheRace to let us know what you would like us to cover and keep your questions coming in for our series finale as well using the hashtag BringBackV10s. Next week, we are talking about Jordan again, although not perhaps for a period that Damon Hill remembers very fondly because we're going to look at the team's championship near miss with Heinz-Hald Frentzen in 1999. We'll see you then.